0: And I'll say a short word of prayer, Father. We thank you for activity. We thank you for programs, Lord. But the heart of what we do is right here, where it's we open your word, God, and the seed of your word, which which can never be figured out, produces 30, 60, and 100 fold. It goes into hearts and minds and soil. And we are all born again of this incorruptible seed, the word of God that lives and abides forever. The flowers fade. The grass will wither, Lord, but only your word endures forever. So, Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us open hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, everyone in this room has been ripped off, scanned at some time, right? You've bought some knockoff that you thought would be the genuine article, only to find out it was lesser than what you thought. Unless you're above me and have a higher intellect, we've all been down that road, right? I'll share a couple with you out of my life Uh, My relatives live six blocks from the ballpark in South Philly, so I've been going to the Phillies, the Eagles games all my life. I went to an opening day one time, had lunch with my aunt, strolled over to the ballpark, and bought a ticket off a scalper. It was a pretty good price, and I looked at it, and it looked authentic, but I walked it over to a couple that were tailgating, and I said, hey, can I see your ticket? I matched tickets, and it looked exactly perfect, so... Uh, I bought the ticket. I looked the scalper in the eye. I said, look, buddy, I've lived here all my life. If this is a ripoff, I will hunt you down to the ends of the earth. Just seeing the look on this guy's face. Go up to the ticket taker and get that pit in my stomach. They put it in the electronic reader. Access denied. I wanted to strangle this guy, right? Just a feeling of being ripped off. Uh, One time I was leading a Bible tour and we were in Turkey. And we went to this rug factory where they make like thirty thousand dollar rugs, the magic carpet, the silk carpets and all. And we were gonna watch how they were made. Well outside, there were guys out there that were selling cologne and perfume. So I'm like, oh my gosh, like Aquadigio for twenty dollars, Red Door, Chloe, all so I did all my Christmas shopping there and thought I had this wonderful haul until Right around Christmas time, I started wrapping, and I thought, "Well, let me try one of these out." And I wear Aquadigio, and I think I bought it from my dad. So I opened it up and I sprayed a little shot, and it smelled like tonic water. And I realized, "Oh my gosh, I got to go out and do all real Christmas shopping." So it just leaves a pit in your stomach, right? You've been wronged, you've been ripped off. And uh, Scripture tells us there are spiritual knockoffs out there. There are things that will rip you off. We've all been a part of it, right? Like Calvary Chapel, I've had you guys for dinner. I've been to your house. I've heard the stories. We are the end of the road. We're the end of the line, so to speak. We're a spiritual hospital where we have all these stories to tell about times where we've been spiritually ripped off. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says, But I fear, somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so that you may be corrupted... From the simplicity that is Christ. Can I tell you guys, Christianity is a very simple religion? Very simple. It's Christ. He's the one that found us, He's, he's the fragrance of life. He, he's the, the field that we went and sold everything and we bought this treasure. He's our all in all. Paul said, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He is the simplicity. And just like Eve fell for this idea that she could be like God, that there was something missing, something would complete her. Uh, Paul said for the early churches that we could be moved from the simplicity that is Christ. John MacArthur, who has preached the Bible for 50 years, the MacArthur Study Bible, has sold millions. He was in a Q&A one time and he was asked, John, what's the greatest thing you've ever learned? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know, it's, it's that simple. In Christ Jesus, we are strong. So it's so refreshing that we're studying the book of Colossians. And some of you are probably surprised, as we started Colossians, we spent two weeks on chapter 1, how refreshing it is that it's all about Jesus. Normally you think, well, if I want to know about Jesus, I go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. And here we come to Colossians 1, and the whole chapter is Jesus. Professor Gordon Hawthorne said, It is the, as though Paul, so overcome with the majesty and the goodness of this one who brought hope to the hopeless and deliverance to the captive, consider prosaic sentences or words totally inadequate to do justice to this person. So his words poured forth in a carefully crafted poem that not only is literary masterpiece, but the mountaintop of Christological statements. Over the last two weeks, we've been on the top of that mountain. We saw Jesus in all his majesty, and all his glory, and all his personhood. And there were six things we discovered. In just a few minutes, I want to go through those six because they're so important. Verse 15 of chapter 1, we found out Jesus is our icon. For thousands of years, the Jews were not to allow to have an image. They were prohibited by the Ten Commandments to have any image of God because they all fall short. In Hebrews chapter 1, God said, now, here's your icon, here's your image, it's Jesus. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. And it answers all the questions. You know, is there a God? If he exists, what's he like? Can he be known? And in Jesus, we see a God who would put children on his lap. He would minister with the downhearted and those who were ostracized from society. We found out there's a God with us that he longed to tabernacle among human beings. He's not a God far away, but he's a God very near. Just a cursory reading of the Gospels would show a God who embraced the powerless, brought justice to the marginalized, and forgiveness to all that would receive it. At times, Jesus was gentle with little children and with outcasts. At other times, he was angry with those who sold in the temple courts. But in Jesus, you get the totality of what God was like. No one had seen God at any time, but Jesus had revealed him. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We found out in verse 16 that Jesus is the creator, that this beautiful natural world, perfectly balanced, teeming with life, things we're going to enjoy in the 4th of July, that Proverbs 8 says he was the master craftsman, that everything was created by him and for him and through him. He's before all things, he's eternal, he's God, and he is the creator. We found out that not only is is he the creator, verse 17 said he's the sustainer. He's holding the whole world together with the word of his power. He's holding positively charged uh, protons in a nucleus together. If that was to be released, the world would end. And Peter said, one day it will. And I shared that if he can create the world, if he can sustain it, he can sustain your life and my life. Uh, We found out in verse 19, Jesus is the reconciler. He's the agent that's bringing God God and man back in the relationship. That in Philippians, that, that because he divested himself and became a man, God has given him the name above every name, that every, that every knee and every heart should bow at the name of Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which a man can be saved. Verse 18 says he's our authority. He's the head of the body, the church. We're just under shepherds, under rowers. His sheep hear his voice. And then probably the last one is my favorite Verse 18, he's our death defeater. He's the first of those who would rise from the dead. When we think of resurrection, we think of Easter, we think Jesus rose from the dead. We, we forgot. He's just a prototype. 1 Corinthians 15 says that one day this mortality will put on immortality. Eugene Peterson in the message said, speaking of Jesus, he leads the resurrection parade. Thursday night I had a bunch of guys over. We grilled steaks. Uh, played a few games, and then we watched the movie Risen. It's one of those few biblical movies worth watching. And just to watch Jesus and the manhunt for the body and to to realize the resurrection is true is just incredible. You add these six things up, and you know what you find out? Jesus is enough. He really is. He's all you need. The math is Jesus plus something else equals nothing, and Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He's all we need. That's the simplicity. And yet, we've been prone to these rip-offs, prone to these knockoffs, And here we are, and we sit here on the 4th of July weekend, and Jesus is all we need. Now, because Christians are weird, and I'm a Christian, so I'm weird at times, and because we take things to the nth degree, when I say Jesus is enough, I don't mean you sit around and read your Bible all day. Like, if you're here and you're 18 and God's called you to be a doctor, you need to go to medical school. You need to read medical books. You just can't open the Bible. G.K. Chesterton solved that once and for all, I think, when he was asked by uh, the media if he was on a deserted island, what one book would he bring? And they all thought he'd say the Bible, right? Christians are weird. And he said, I think if I was deserted on an island for a long time, I would want Thompson's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding to be my book that I would have with me. I'd want to get off the island. So, uh, you know, common sense isn't common. We need to be fulfilled with common sense. But the Bible is our manual. It's given us everything for life and godliness. So the idea is, and here's what we need to understand, we're not spiritually grocery shopping anymore. We're not looking for the latest fads or trends in the church, seven steps to this, or the silver bullet that's going to give you health and wealth and peace. You know, we have that in Jesus. Jesus. We're rooted and grounded in him. And as Paul begins chapter 2, look what he says in verse 1. He said, I want you to know what a great conflict. Uh, We use the word agita today. I have for you and those in Laodicea, uh, as many of you have not even seen my face. Paul did not start this church. We don't see it in the book of Acts. Hierapolis, uh, Laodicea, Colossae, probably all came out of the Ephesian church, which was a mega church. Uh, But Paul said, I haven't seen you, but I have this concern. And his prayer was that their hearts would be encouraged, knit together in love, verse 2, and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone would deceive you With persuasive words. And that's how it always begins. Whenever you're moved from simplicity in Christ, it's always with clever talkers, right? So today we have TED Talks. We have clever, uh, wonderful communicators in the church. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. But Paul said, but there's a lot of knockoffs out there. (laughs) There's a lot of things that look like the real deal. And Jude said the people that kind of perpetrate this, they're clouds without rain. They have all the appearance that they're going to water you, but it's kind of empty inside. And they're going to deny you access to this treasure, and there's no real fragrance. It doesn't really smell of Christ. Persuasive words. Uh, last week, someone came up to me and said, Pastor Bob, I've been looking at this thing on YouTube. Have you heard about it? About these Chinese letters. And they explained how way before Buddhism and Confucianism that when the Chinese alphabet was built, if you go back and look at it, it's actually built from the gospel, which makes sense. If if the you know the earth was rebooted with Noah, then Shem, Ham and Japheth, you know, that would be true. So I went home and I looked at it and I was fascinated by it. And but I'm not going to build my faith on it. You understand? In other words, that's just going to be another little peg in my journey if it turns out to be true. And I don't know if it's true. Uh, Years ago, Michael Drosnan had a book called The Bible Code, where, you know, the Bible is numeric, you know, Hebrew and Greek are numeric and alphabetic. And so he had this thing where you could do like acrostics, like you ever do that word, you know, find the word. And of course, he wrote this book about how all history was there, World War II, etc. And I was all excited until I went to Israel and I talked to my Jewish guy, Daniel. And Daniel said, Bob, that's, that's, just not true. I could show you the LA Lakers, Michael Jordan, whatever you want in an acrostic. So we, we need to be careful of this stuff. We don't need to help God along. You know, it's wonderful if it's true. And what you need to realize is the Colossians were being called out. The church were the called out ones. They were being called out of an empire, the Roman Empire. Just like all God's people have been called out of empire, Israel was called out of Egypt. And when God called them out of Egypt, he said, you're never going to be like the Egyptians. You're never going to enslave. You're never going to marginalize. That's why you're always going to love the stranger and the orphan. And Moses gave them the Ten Commandments to get Egypt out of them. You know, you're not going to work seven days. You're going to rest. You're not going to make images like the Egyptians did. So God is always calling us, and now it's it's spiritual. He's calling us out of the dominant empire. And the dominant empire has its ways, its systems, its scoreboard. And just like the Colossians of that day, we feel the weight of empire. We feel the weight of how this world keeps score. And if we're not careful, we get sucked back in to their ways and their methods. I was doing a Q&A Tuesday night with our teens. And uh, after they asked me a bunch of questions, I started questioning them. What's it like at school? What are you guys facing? And they said, well, you know, social media is something that's trying for us. Gender, classification, religious freedom. And I shared with them, I said, you know, you guys probably feel like you're different from other generations. You're not. You know, we all face things like that. The problem you guys are facing is the institutions that at least, you know, espouse that. You know, they're espousing something different today, so you guys are a little bit unique. But I share with them that, that because they're postmodern and maybe even pre Christian, they're nowhere near what the Colossians felt. They, they were pagan to the core and had to live this life of Christ surrounded by all types of things. So every age feels this. And what Paul's going to do here in Colossians 2 is give us four things that have an appearance that they can make us stronger and wiser, but at the end of the day, take us away from the simplicity of Christ. So let's look at the first one in verse eight. He says, beware. And beware isn't the person next to you could fall prey to this. You know, we're all like sheep. We're all kind of naive and we can be led astray. So when the Bible says beware, it means you can find yourself in this place. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not to Christ. Why? Because in him is all the fullness. And i got to tell you this again, you're complete in him. The day you got saved, you were complete in him. There was nothing that needed to be added. Now, whenever we talk about philosophy, you know, you know, I hear Bible teachers get up and rail against philosophy and Much of what they're railing at, they just don't understand. Philosophy is not a bad thing. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek. The word for wisdom is Sophia. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. The Greeks loved wisdom, but so did the Hebrews. Your Bible has four wisdom books in it. Job, the Song of Solomon, Psalms, and Proverbs. Solomon, when God said... You know, you're 21 years old, you're going to lead Israel, what is your one request? He didn't ask for money or fame, he asked for wisdom. And God said, because you didn't ask for great riches or the death of your enemies, I'm going to make you the wisest man that ever lived. And he wrote a thousand songs and 3,000 proverbs. The Bible tells us that we should prize wisdom above all else, greater than rubies or precious silver. That in all our getting, we should get wisdom. However, Proverbs 1.8 says this, That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, you can't even understand life and all its complexities unless God is at the center. At one time, that's what a university was. You know, theology was the queen of the sciences. You had economics, you had philosophy, you had English. But but at the center was God or truth. Now, even the Greeks understood this. Plato... In the Republic, he described philosophers as those men who had no taste for falsehood and they cherished truth. He was smart enough to understand that, that if you're going to reason what life's about, it's got to be a quest for truth. Aristotle in ethics said the person who loves truth for the sake of truth when nothing's at stake will stand for truth when everything's at stake. So these august thinkers said, okay, even though they worshipped other gods, he said at the heart of the matter is, what is truth? It's only when we get to the Enlightenment with Rousseau and Kant and Marx and Nietzsche where the shift is away from truth. Uh, Huxley. And many of your students who will go to the university will read Brave New World and they'll be challenged. Huxley's the only one who kind of opens the door. He's the only one that's honest that that there's kind of a removal of God and truth out of philosophy. Huxley said that uh, his approach, he freely admitted, took for granted the world had no meaning. He says he didn't discover it had no meaning, he just started there. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons. Listen, for my assumption. You know what that was? He said, I objected to morality because it interfered, this is a quote, with my sexual freedom. Huxley said, I began my quest without God because there's a way I wanted to live. So, just like science, I've told you, you know, a guy wears a white coat, you don't believe everything he says. And just because a guy's a great thinker like David Hume doesn't mean you believe that he started with all the right assumptions. Huxley's saying he didn't, and, he, and it was for a reason. Huxley went on to say the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in metaphysics, he's also concerned to prove that there's no reason why he personally should. Uh, not do as he wants, or why his friends should seize political power and govern in a way they find the most advantageous what he 's saying is you know we wanted to we wanted to be like Eve, we wanted to be like gods. we wanted to call the shots now at the heart of this, and this is what we 're concerned with this morning. It's something you may have heard of called Gnosticism. We don't use the word today. We're not even sure what Gnosticism was. It was complex. Whatever it was, it was a spiritual ladder climbing. It was the lesser gods to the greater God. Uh, what is disheartening about it is they believe the spiritual was greater than the physical. And that's not what we believe in Christianity. We believe in spirit, soul, and body. We're all you know, intertwined. What what is disheartening is that in Gnosticism, gnosos, or knowledge, would supersede anything. So so the more knowledge you got, the higher class you would be. Now, I got saved in 1983, and I I understand something about Gnosticism. It was my seminary. I got saved in a very loving church, uh, believed Jesus was the Lord, and believed in the Holy Spirit and all, but had an aberrant theology called faith theology. In other words, uh, we could confess through words our reality, and we would be prosperous, and you would never get sick, and so forth and so on, and uh, should have realized as a first sign something was wrong, because I would go to a local Christian bookstore, and none of the guys that were teaching this, none of their books were there, so I would go back to my pastor and say, well, how come none of the books in our bookstore are in the local Christian bookstore, and he said, well, they haven't really attained to this type of faith yet, should be warning like 101, that we were in a higher spiritual class. We had greater knowledge. And I watched people get pulled away, what Paul said, to be cheated, to be taken captive by this. Paul said in Corinthians, knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. And I was puffed up, and so were those in our church. You know, I look at this and I think, can you imagine going to Peter who was crucified upside down for the Lord and saying, Peter, shh, come over here. Let me show you this. Let me show you this YouTube video. Let me, there's this secret teaching, you know, seven steps to greater, greater knowledge of Christ. Peter would have said, I walked with Christ. Are you kidding? I know the aroma of Christ. Imagine the woman caught in adultery telling her there was a greater knowledge. The woman who brought, broke the alabaster box of ointment A year's wage. All this take us away from the simplicity of Christ. Paul David Tripp's talk Wednesday, I thought was one of the greatest sizzling summer talks, where he talked about his bout with cancer and he talked about Psalm 27. And he talked about making the glory of God great and the glory of God known. That this God who created all the world, that we are in relationship with him and it's all we need. So Paul said, beware against these philosophies, beware against these doctrines. They, they, they have an emptiness to them. The treasure is Christ. Now the second thing he warns about in verse 11 is legalism. He says, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now evidently the Jews had brought in feast days and circumcision they had tied it together with Greek philosophy. Paul's saying, well, let's do the math here. Um, you're going to get circumcised? You you were circumcised of the heart. Verse 12, you were buried in baptism. You were raised from the dead. Verse 14, he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed principalities and powers, made a public spectacle of them. Because of all that was done on the cross, verse 16, let no one judge you in food or drink or Sabbaths or festivals which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Look, no one believes in holiness more than I do. Someone came up to me and said, Pastor Bob, I'm a little worried. You talk so much about legalism. People are going to do what they want. And I'm like, no, people are going to do what they want because they want to do what they want. Okay? I believe in holiness. Holiness means we've been set apart. That's all it means. In other words, in our sexuality, we are different from the empire. The empire says, hook up, sleep with whoever you want, sex is casual, eat, drink, and marry, tomorrow you die. Holiness says, the marriage bed is undefiled, everyone else chaste. That's what it says. When it comes to my money, I realize I'm a steward. You know, God has given me money, I pay my bills, I bless people, and I give to the kingdom. It's black and white. My mind is God, my mouth is God's, the things I see are God's. Paul said all things are lawful for me, they're just not all profitable, they don't please God. And the heart of the problem when we get into this is a problem of the heart. See, it's the heart that God's after, the circumcision of the heart. So it, when I raise kids, right, you know, when I raise kids, you know, there's rules in our homes, there's things we do, there's politeness, there's, there, there's all kinds of things we're teaching. But if I don't get their hearts, I'll never get them. And parents are about all this extracurricular thing and they forget what we're trying to do is reach the child's heart. What God's trying to do is reach our hearts. If we have their hearts, we have all of them. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be. This is why Christian schools struggle so much, because they have to educate, they have to keep a standard of morality, and at the end of the day, they got to do so many things, but what they can't do is get to the heart, because, because parents are paying for a product. And what every teacher worth their salt in a Christian school is trying to do is educate, but they're trying to get to the heart. It's a very difficult thing to do. And so the heart of the problem has always been a problem of the heart. Legalism, if you notice, has always had a cultural face, right? So in some parts of the country, it's about beards, mustaches, and tattoos. In other places, it's who you can date, how you dress. Uh, I'll never forget, I was in Russia, and we spent an hour with pastors over this major conundrum, can we rent pirated movies? I'm like, oh my gosh, I get on a plane traveled 8,000 miles to talk about can you rent a pirated movie? It seemed ridiculous to me. But to them, you know, that that was the cultural reality. Paul says, the last time I looked, Christ got up on a cross. So that the handwriting of requirements, the law that was contrary to your nature, would be done away with. Christ got up on a cross so it wouldn't be about feast days and holy days and Sabbath days, and you wonder why are we pray to this? Here's why we pray to this: every day, you and I battle three things: the flesh, the world, and the devil. And because we're sick and tired of it, and I know I am, and I know Paul was, he said, "The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't do, I want to do." Because we're tired of it, we want the silver bullet, we want the special teaching, the goosebumps, whatever it is that will make us complete, so we never deal with this again. And guess what? It ain't coming. It ain't coming. Jesus sweated great drops of blood. Jesus got up early in the morning. The world is going nowhere. Your flesh with all its appetites, which by the way are given by God, is not going anywhere until you get in that coffin. And the devil is roaming as a roaring lion and he wants to devour you. Now, his teeth have been taken away, right? Look here, he was made an open spectacle, He's got a loud roar, but his teeth have been taken off. And so because we face this every day, we think, oh, God, gosh, if I could just find, you know, if I could just bind Satan, you know, if I could just bind him, at least that'll be done with. If I could just have this, or if I could just have that, or add the seven steps to this. No, the Bible says we're going to walk this daily walk, and we're going to, and we're going to We're going to realize who we are in Christ and and the price that he paid and he disarmed principalities and powers. Uh, The next thing Paul talks about, I won't spend a lot here, Uh, verse 18, he said, let no one, here's that word again, no one cheat you of your reward. Taking delight in in false humility, worship of angels, intruding into things which which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows and increases in the fruit of God. Uh, One of the things that will cheat you is mysticism. You know, there is an unseen world. The Bible kind of pulls the curtain back. There's devils and demons and principalities and powers. Can I say one thing about them? It's the unseen world. It's the world we were never meant to see. Thank God. Can you imagine if you walked in and there was a demon behind every bush and the devil was sitting in a rocking chair? I mean, we'd be, you know, the, we'd be scared to death. It would be like Monsters Incorporated, right? So God has kept that world unseen. The curtain's been pulled back so we know it's there. And nowhere does it say we engage in this world. Now, you know, Daniel was praying, and the angel said, look, I, I got stopped uh, when you were praying. There, there was warfare going on. Daniel didn't know anything about it. But so many Christians want to get into this unseen world. Jude tells us that not even Michael, an archangel, uh, disputed with Satan over the body of Moses. And I'm thinking, if Michael this Warring dude in the Bible, this archangel, if he's not at war with Satan, in a world he can see, why am I? Instead of me going around binding Satan, why don't I live in the reality of greater is in me than he is in the world. The names of God and and the territory God has given me and and the child of God that I am, that I get up in the confidence of, of who I am. Instead of warring in a world that I cannot see and cannot know. Prayer is where that battle is won. Jesus in the morning was found on the mountain in prayer. Jesus sweated great drops of blood. And when I'm in communion with my Father and in prayer, those things begin to fall away. Uh, Carla Matriciana wrote a book called The Beautiful Side of Evil. It's probably out of print now if you can get it. um, Great. I I don't know if it's still in print. But She talks about how, you know, she came out of the dark world. Ouija and witchcraft and all that. And how when she became a Christian, how Christians were actually getting into this world that she had come out of and she couldn't believe it. Drugs is a big part of this world. The the Greek word for sorcery is pharmakia, where we get drugs. So it's kind of a gateway to all this stuff. So Paul said, again, that's a slippery road. And then finally, verse 20, therefore... If you die with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves again to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Now listen to what he says. These things have an appearance of wisdom in man-made religion, false humility, and neglect of the body. But people, you're going to get ripped off. Look what it says. They have no value against the indulgence of your flesh. I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, The last thing Paul warns against is asceticism. Uh, Every religion has this, you know, some kind of piety, some kind of frugality, some kind of mutilation where, you know, I'm going to kind of put myself under and then I'll be holy or I'll know God in a better way. Now, again, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. You know, moderation, self-control, the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, John the Baptist, Jesus, uh, put themselves under. Fasting is a wonderful spiritual discipline. You know, the, the body has to be put under because, because it, it, it wants to take hold. But I love how Dallas Willard um, Treats this and, and Dallas swims in the deep end of the pool. He was a keen observer of culture. And he was a philosopher. So anybody who's been trained in the classical school of philosophy knows there's two great questions. What is the good life and who is the good person? And Dallas said, you know, what is the good life is answered by our advertisers today. The cars we drive, the clothes we wear, the things we drink. You know, that's the portal to the good life he said, but the ironic thing is, who is the good person is often told at a funeral. So the advertisers tell us about the good life, but when we go to a funeral, we don't talk about what someone wore or how nice their teeth were or what kind of house they had. We talk about the person they were. They were a great dad, a great mom, a great person. They were loving and kind, etc., etc." C.S. Lewis said, in the end, you will either give up trying to be good, Or else become one of those people who, as they say, live for others, but always in a disconnected, grumbling way. Always wondering why the others do not notice it more. Or always making a martyr of yourself. And once you have become that, you will be a far greater pest to anyone who has to live with you than you would have been if you had remained, frankly, selfish, Lewis said. You know what he was saying? He was saying the gospel is simple. That we run around to the ends of the earth looking for esoteric doctrines or things that will give us goosebumps. And and listen, I'm not against learning. That's why we have a bookstore. And I'm not against experience. And I'm not against great things that are going on. Please don't understand. It's just part of a journey. And if there's a church doing great things, you know, I'll applaud them. And if somebody writes a book, I'll applaud them. But here's what Lewis said. If I wake up in the morning and I put a serving towel around my arm, and I wash my wife's feet, and she does the same thing for me, we're going to have a pretty good marriage. And the simplicity of Christ is that people were made in the image of God. And if we wake up to serve, and if we bring a psalm and a spiritual song, and if we bless one another, that's why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, because love always wins. And I've watched people who were fighting demons In the morning, but they couldn't do the dishes in the afternoon, and they couldn't cut the lawn, and they couldn't help people. And, and, and do you see how simple this is? Do you see how easy it is? The good life is found in the good person, and the good person has found his treasure in Jesus Christ. The victory of Jesus Christ over the gods of Greece and Rome in the fourth century. Was responsible for a massive and magnificent outpouring of creativity that is probably without parallel in the history of art. And it's unparalleled in the history of music, compassion, and government. For 20 centuries, Jesus has been enough for the human race. He's all that we need. He's the guiding force. He's the city on the hill. He's the light that is illuminated and drawn out of followers for generations and centuries. Who we need to be and all that we're becoming. He's all that we need. He's the greatest inspirational figure that's ever lived. He's the living word. And he's bringing out of each and every one of us something very unique. And the beauty is he's put us together the church. Here we are. We gather. We fellowship. And and apart from who we are as a body, we're nothing. You know, we read he's the head of the church. And if you read Revelation 2 and 3, you know where he is? In the midst of the church. Right in the midst of the church, right, right there with them, good and bad, seven churches, some good, some, some fallen, some aberrant. But he's there among an imperfect people, drawing something out of us to make us wonderful. And even here on the 4th of July, this country we love called America is such an anomaly, it's hard to understand You know, I'm reading another book about George Washington. It's at least my fourth. And we uh, tend to look at history with rose-colored glasses. And in this book that I'm reading, you find out that at the Revolution, that the 13 colonies were in tatters. The British were here. It looked like everything was lost. Benedict Arnold commits treason. And it was that one act that spurred Washington into a renewal. And Washington's a mixed bag. Some say he was a believer. Some say he was a deist. But somewhere in the midst of all that, Washington gets a second wind, and the rest is history. And you read enough history books, and you realize people came here for God and money. The people that came for God, man, they came in a powerful way. And somehow this nation was forged. And it's an anomaly of history. And it's all because of one person who never read a book, never recorded music, never moved outside of the nation that he was born, who became the greatest inspiration for human beings that ever lived. And we get a chance to know him. Not know about him, not to know how we can achieve our ladder climb. We get to know him. It's why Paul said for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, and everything else I put in the rubbish can that I may know the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering. And Paul writes to the Colossians, you are complete in him. You are not a second-class citizen. If you've heard somebody's doing this over there or that over there, don't worry about it. You are complete in him. In him is the fullness. The fullness. God put the fullness in in him. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the fullness was in him, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of God, and he tabernacled among us. His presence is with us, and he's all we need. Father, we thank you for Jesus this morning.